If you got a Bible, open it on up. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. It's good to be back with you guys. Uh, we, me and a bunch of guys went to man camp last weekend. It was really a phenomenal time. So thank you guys for, for praying for us. And, and thank you, Roger, for bringing the word faithfully. And uh, it's a little weird being in this room. It's not the way it was before. So uh, we're kind of prepping this room to take that wall out and sort of push everything back. So it's going to be a little bit funky in here for a little while, but we're just going to make do. And, and God, is, God is good. Yeah, Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to pray one more time. Well, Father God, we open your word this morning uh, expectantly. Lord, what a great privilege it is to sit with Bibles open, Lord, to say, Father, speak, and to know that you're a God that speaks. Lord, we, uh, we want to hang on every word this morning of this text. We want to ring it out to say, what is the point here? How does this apply to us. And God, if there would be a prophetic word for this church, if for us individually, Lord, from your word, would you bring that out, Holy Spirit? God, make us students this morning. Conform our minds and our eyes and our thoughts to be like your thoughts. We need our minds to be transformed. And most importantly, God, I pray that we would simply be reminded of the gospel this morning and all of its realities. In Jesus' name, amen. So Donald English once said the following phrase, and I want you to remember it. He said, true disciples follow the man on the donkey all the way. True disciples follow the man on the donkey all the way. I want you to remember that. That's going to be a tagline for us this morning. You know, um, hype is a really powerful tool. It's amazing what humans will do if you uh, put them in a situation where you know they'll do it. Um, I remember, uh, I don't know if I should say this. I remember working at a church, uh, a mega church some time ago and, and the guy running sound and I was, I was standing there next to him and he, he said, hey, you wanna watch this? You wanna see something? I said, sure. He's like, watch, I can make everyone's hands go up. He reaches over to the bass slider, the sub, pulls it up and all of a sudden it's like, bing! And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Uh, we, we, humans, uh, humans are manipulatable, aren't we? I mean, we are. We're, we're manipulatable. We, we are. Actually, it's very possible to make people do what you want them to do if you create the right sort of setting or the right place. Hype is a powerful thing. If, if we aren't careful, we will actually create environments where people's faith is in hype and not in him. Right? And this has been a struggle for, uh, for Western evangelicals right? for some time, this reality that we can sort of um, get people endeared to the wrong thing. When I was a kid in, in high school, before I came to Christ, I was, um, I was sort of, uh, I would go every year to conferences or, or big youth events, youth gatherings, right? Uh, one of them was called Acquire the Fire, um, and it was, a, it was in a packed out arena, right? And it was really cool. It was really great. There was nothing wrong with it. But it was always puzzled me because I would see my, my friends that were in high school, they sort of these partying, uh, foul mouth, you know, pot smoking, just kind of worldly friends. And, and they, would, they would go to these things. And, and within a day, it's like they had this experience and all of a sudden they were all Christians, right? And it's like, wow, that's amazing. What an incredible thing. But then we would come home and it would, go, it would be a day or two later. And before you know it, all of that was gone. They're right back to their normal life. And that would sort of happen, like the cycle, every year. I'd go to camp, see these kids, have these experiences. And I was just sort of, as a non-Christian that was raised in the church, I was just sort of watching this and thinking, what is that? 
Like, how do I think about, how do I feel about that? Is it, is, it not, is it all not real? Is it all not fake? Well, I don't think it's all not real. I don't think it's all not fake. But here's the reality. We have, as humans, as we have this ability to be moved sometimes and not be changed. We have this ability to, to get caught up in a moment and to sort of feel like we've actually changed, but in reality, we haven't. See, we think people change on the mountaintops, but actually, people change in the valleys, People get enlightened on mountaintops. They get clarity on mountaintops. But it's, it's not the mountaintop moments that shape us. It's the valley moments. It's the moments where we come to the end of ourself. And one of the problems, not to, not to make this uh, an anti-Western Christianity thing, but one of the problems in the West is that we've created all of our worship settings to be mountaintop settings, right? Where, where, where everything is euphoric, where everything is about the senses and where everything is about getting us to transcend out of our grief and our sorrow and our heart and sort of ha- having a, a big enough sound system and a cool enough this and a cool enough that and a big enough stage to make us feel like we, we get up out of the, the valley of life. And that's fine. But the problem with that is, is that faith happens in the valley. And, and, and what happens is we sort of get this false idea that we're, 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 we're changing just because we had an experience. You know, the reality is, is the majority of those who say they are Christians in the West are not. Did you know that? Jesus told us this. He told us this over and over and over again. He gave us uh, multiple parables that tried to explain this reality. One of them was, was that the kingdom, he said, is like a net. And the net goes into the ocean and it catches a lot of fish. But the reality is, is it scoops them all into the boat, but not all of the fish are going to be in the kingdom. He gives another parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like wheat in a field. And somebody snuck in in the middle of the night and, and sowed a bunch of tares in the midst of the wheat. And the the field workers are like, should we go in and start removing the tares? He said, no, 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 just let them grow. Let them grow up. And as they grow up, their fruit or their stock or their life will begin to reveal whether they're actually fruit or whether they're actually wheat or whether they're tares. I mean, Jesus brought this up over and over again. John 15, he talked about the vine. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. Anyone who doesn't abide in me, a dead branch will be removed and cast into the fire. He said, there's sheep and there's goats. Only the sheep belong in the pen. The shepherd knows the sheep and the shepherd will separate the goats from the sheep. Right? I mean, he talked about the seed. He said, there's, there's the gospel seed goes out. It goes out to all of these different categories. And one of the categories is the person who receives it instantly for joy, has this sort of emotional uh, experience, but then there's no root system. And so immediately the sun comes out and scorches the seed. And so it appeared to have life, but in the end of the day, it wasn't really alive. I mean, Jesus was really trying to get us to understand that reality. The truest, I think, tragedy of our age is that we are right now seeing and have been seeing the fallout of what has been called the seeker-friendly movement, which is to say, let's make Christianity more accessible in order to get more conversions. But here's the problem. The great commission of Christ was not to get conversions. What was it to get? Disciples. And listen to me. Disciples are those that follow the man on the donkey all the way. Say, what are you talking about? Our text today should be a sobering and vivid reminder of just how hollow and fleeting deceiving false allegiance to Jesus can be. 
How can we know if we're truly his or if we're just caught up in the hype? That's gonna be our question we're gonna run after this morning. How can we know if we're a true disciple or if we're just sort of caught up in some kind of a moment and some kind of a, a euphoric experience that we're sort of running off of? This morning, we're gonna look at the entrance of Jesus. It's actually funny, Mike made this at the beginning of this series and now we're here, here we are. Uh, we are going to look this morning at what has been called the triumphal entry of Christ. It's the moment where Jesus finally makes his way into Jerusalem and, and begins um, to enter the, the eastern side of Jerusalem. That's what we're gonna look at this morning. Now, entrances, entrances are a funny thing, right? Um, when you're someone important, uh, the way you make an interest in, entrance into an important place says a lot about who you are, right? Uh, so, for instance, when I was, I was in Israel years ago leading, um, like, a, a tour there, and we just happened to come at the same time as the Pope. I would never recommend that. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. I mean, they were literally shutting down, like, entire sections of the city of Jerusalem. So we had to, like, change our whole itinerary. We, we basically had to, to be one day or two days behind the Pope. And what was so funny is that we would come into these holy sites after the Pope was there, and, uh, and we would see massive, like, 100 by 100 foot pictures of the Pope's face on the side of a building, like kissing a baby or something, right? And then these huge Vatican flags, I mean, they just really rolled out the red carpet for this guy. Uh, they really Really, the Vatican just sort of made sure that his presence was very felt, right? Um, and and what, it kind of, what it kind of taught me was, you know, how someone enters a place, really, it tells you what they want you to know about them. Well, how does Jesus enter into the city of Jerusalem? And what does it tell us about him and what he wants us to, to think about regarding him? That's what we're going to look at this morning. There's really a, a lot of points of intrigue in our passage this morning. You know, one of them is, um, why does Jesus, who up until this point has been so private, all of a sudden create this very public event. What's that, what's that all about? You know, Jesus, uh, he, he clearly is in control of this, this thing, as we'll see. He's, he's making it happen. And, and for the most part, every time Jesus would heal somebody, he'd say, hey, don't tell anybody. He'd heal a blind person, don't tell anybody. He'd heal a leper, don't tell anybody. Jesus was trying to keep himself out of the public eye. But yet here in our text, Jesus is gonna come parading in in this massive public procession and he wants it that way. Why? We need to ask that question. We need to ask the question of where did this crowd that we're gonna look at, where did it come from and why is it there and why are they there greeting Jesus, yelling, Hosanna? We need to ask the question, why does all four gospel writers include this event in their gospels? Clearly, it's important. Clearly, there's something of importance here. And we need to ask the question, uh, when Jesus gets to the temple, as we'll see, why does he look around and leave? It's the most anticlimactic ending to one of the most intense public scenes, really, in the New Testament. So those are the questions that we're going to kind of wrestle with this morning, and I really want to run after this question. What does it look like to be a true disciple and not just to be someone sort of caught up in the hype of the moment? And I think that we're going to see here, I'll just tip my hand to this, I think what we're going to see here is that Jesus' intention is not to draw attention to himself, but to ensure death for himself. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. So if you're there... Open it on up. A little bit of background, by the way, in our text before we start reading. This event, the triumphal entry as it's called, uh, it's a terrible name for it, by the way, and I'll tell you why. Um, the, the triumphal entry takes place during the most popular, most well-attended pilgrimage feast of the Jews, and that is Passover. 
Okay? It's Passover week. And Jesus, like thousands, in fact, millions of uh, Jews are making the journey up into Jerusalem. Like Roger taught us last week, Jerusalem is up. It's up. It's, it's a mountain, basically. And so everyone is traveling up to Jerusalem. Um, and Jerusalem itself would have been swollen with about 2.5 million people. Okay? A lot. By those, by those standards in those days, this is massive. Uh, this place would be bustling. Just massive caravans of people pouring into the city. And you need to remember that Israel uh, or Judea, uh, yeah, Judea is under the control of what? Rome. And what is Passover a feast to celebrate? It's a, a feast to celebrate the independence of Israel from their enslaved captors, Egypt, right? So nationalistic pride, nationalist, nationalism is very high at this point, and the Romans know that. They're very aware of that. Patriotism is in high swing. And the Romans would have beefed up their military uh, in order to make sure to augment any kind of insurrection that might have come up at the time. Now, Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea, which is a coastal town on the Mediterranean. He would have entered Jerusalem probably some days before this, and he wants to make sure, see, Pilate's on thin ice already with, with sort of the higher uppers, so he wants to make sure that everything is going to go smoothly, that there's not going to be any uprising or any issues. And Pilate, interestingly, would have entered into Jerusalem with his own procession, with his own parade, and he would have done so in such a way that was meant to flex his military might. And so would Herod. Herod, sort of the puppet king of the Jews, um, he also would have made his entrance into Jerusalem, flexing his military might with a parade and with a procession and with a greeting. And so this is a crowded space. Jerusalem, here's what I'm getting at. Jerusalem in this moment is a tinderbox. It's, a t it's just waiting for a match to strike it. You have the Romans who have beefed up security of Roman soldiers everywhere. You have the insurrectionists, you know, the zealots who are probably considering planning a, a coup or some way to try to get at the Roman governor. You have the, the, the Sadducees who are running the, the mafiesque uh, temple uh, scheme basically on high alert, knowing that they're going to make more money at this Passover feast than they probably will all year. You have the money changers who are ripping people off. All of these travelers coming in, uh, they have to buy a temple-approved sacrifice. And so the temple mount is bustling. It's crazy. There's just people everywhere. You need to understand that. And Jesus knows this. It's not lost on him. He's very aware that this is the moment that he's coming into Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, something had happened just days prior to this. And it was that Jesus, and we don't read about it in Mark, it's in the Gospel of John, and the, 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 the reality is that Jesus had raised a dead man, remember? Lazarus. Because he raised a dead man, his popularity has surged. So people are just talking about this Jesus. They want to see him. And Jesus is staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in Bethany, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem. It's sort of his home base. So his popularity has surged. The night before this event, Jesus had his feet anointed by Mary. Um, and this is not his first trip into Jerusalem, but he's been talking time and time again about this suffering and this, this, this death that he is, is headed towards. And the disciples, I can just sort of imagine, are on high alert, right? What's he going to do? Again, walking into a tinderbox of a city, what is Jesus going to do? I would imagine the disciples are fairly nervous. Now, keeping all that in mind, let's take a look at our passage. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, 
I'll stop there just for a moment. I, I want to explain some topography to you. Uh, I already mentioned Jerusalem is sitting on a mountain, um, but Jerusalem is not the highest point on the mountain. 300 feet above Jerusalem to the east, there is something called the Mount of Olives. Okay? And so basically, the way that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem is he's actually going to come up from the backside, um, from the east, from Bethany. He's going to come up over the Mount of Olives, and as he crests the Mount of Olives, he would see the Temple Mount. Herod's temple was an impressive feature, by the way. It, 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 was, it was massive. He's going to crest the Temple Mount, and then he's going to come down into Jerusalem. And there's going to be this parade, as we're going to see, that's going to follow him up and over into sort of this bowl where Jerusalem sits. Verse 1, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. The other gospel writers help us to understand this is the colt of a donkey. Okay, so, so the brand new uh, sort of adolescent cult of a donkey, Jesus sends two of his disciples, we don't know which two, he sends them to go and retrieve this cult because he has a purpose for it. According to Mosaic Law, uh, you can write these down, Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3, that um, an animal, uh, in order for an animal to be used for sacred purpose, it had to have never been used for something common. So this is a brand new donkey colt that Jesus has use for. Uh, it's well known in the ancient world that no one else was allowed to ride on the king's horse. So clearly Jesus is pulling on that imagery. And it's also known that commandeering, commandeering a beast of burden was the king's prerogative. Okay, so, so Jesus is acting like a king here. He sends two of his men to go retrieve this animal. Now, we don't know if Jesus had seen it before or if Jesus is sort of using his omniscience or if the Spirit revealed it to him. But either way, Jesus, I want you to see this. This is important. Jesus is orchestrating the whole thing. He's driving the show. This isn't the disciples' idea. This is Jesus' idea. He instructs his disciples to go and to get this animal. He says, untie it and bring it. In verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, uh, this is helpful. Uh, Rick Boya, he, he, he gives a helpful explanation of what a donkey would have been like in those days. It was like a little pickup truck. Okay? This is a brand new pickup truck. Okay? They're useful for throwing stuff in. You know, you're running to Grange Co-op. You got to get a couple bags of feed. You throw them in the back. This is brand new. Like, still has the little plastic things on the tires on the side, right? And so Jesus is like, hey, go, go take this person's brand new pickup truck that hasn't even been used and bring it to me. And he says, um, if they ask, you know, here's, here's what you do. So verse 4, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing now, this isn't the owner. This is just somebody that knows the owner, and they're kind of like, excuse me? Are you supposed to be taking his, his brand-new colt of a donkey? And verse 6, they told them what Jesus had said. I can imagine they're a little apprehensive, right? Uh, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. Oh, it worked. Okay. <laughs> well, that was, that was a little crazy, right? Now, we don't know why these guys are okay with it, but I wonder if these guys weren't believers, they weren't followers of Jesus because this, this assumption that they know who the Lord is to me is interesting. It's like shorthand for some reason. So it seems like maybe they have this idea. Now, verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks onto it, and he sat on it. Now, th this is interesting. See, a full-grown man could typically not mount an unbroken, untrained, unridden colt like this. But yet Jesus 
who's a carpenter, by the way, has, seems to have no problem just hopping up on the back of this coal. Why? Why is that? Now, this is kind of a side note, but, but I think it's worth noting that right here we're seeing the new Adam. We're seeing the second Adam. You see, remember, Adam was called to be the, uh, the, the curator uh, the, the sovereign over the animal kingdom. That's what the call was in the book of Genesis. But when sin entered and when wrath entered and when the curse entered, the animal kingdom and the human kingdom became separated and animals are sort of afraid of us, right? And we're sort of afraid of them. It's just kind of mutual fear that we have. But yet this donkey, who would probably normally buck this guy off, knows that sitting on his back is not just a man, it is the God-man. It is the creator. See, this animal knows its place. He knows that on its back is not a hostile man, not a man that he needs to fear, but a gentle man, the suffering servant, the man who created him, the man who gave him purpose. It's really a beautiful picture. Now, verse 8, as he's coming in, it says, many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And what is all this about? This is, this is this massive crowd that out of nowhere sort of forms and they begin to put their cloaks down and let Jesus and his donkey ride over the top of their cloaks. Now this is a picture right out of the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites did this when Jehu was crowned king and they would put their, uh, their, their garments down and let him walk over the top as a, as a way of sort of signaling that he was the new king. So there's clearly a, a kingship in mind here to some degree. And the, the, the palm branches that we, uh, it doesn't say palm branches here, but in the other gospels we learn it is, that was a symbol of, of nationalistic pride, of Jewish nationalism. Okay, so, so there's a lot of symbolism happening here, a lot of things going on. Verse 9, oh, and we need to ask, by the way, how, how did this crowd get here, right? I mean, what's going on? I think it's pretty safe to say that Jesus arranged this. It's pretty safe to say that he arranged, now I don't know if he sent his disciples to just sort of kind of put the word out there that Jesus, this healer, this rabbi was coming into town and to kind of form this crowd. But what we do know is that, that Jesus is at the helm. He is the one making this moment happen. Now, verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed, so we have people ahead and people behind, there's this giant parade that's all sort of centered around Jesus. They're shouting, Hosanna, which is just save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they're singing a song that we read earlier in the service. Remember, we read Psalm 118. This is the song that they're singing. Now, it might have felt a little awkward this morning to not have like instruments and music, and that's just because we're used to it. But in reality, most of the worship that happened with the Jews was just them singing, just the voices. And when they would come into Jerusalem for these feasts, they would sing what we call the songs of ascent, they would march up Jerusalem, and in this big procession, in this big caravan, they would just be singing these words. And this Psalm 118 that they're singing over Jesus is one of the most common welcoming songs for the pilgrims as they would enter into Jerusalem for this Passover feast. So they're singing this over Jesus. It's really a, a beautiful thing. Then verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Note that. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is interesting because the first part is right out of Psalm 118, but the second part in verse 10, we don't find it anywhere in the scripture. It's not anywhere in any Jewish writing, in the first century writing. It's a very interesting thing that they're saying. And, and notice what they're not saying. They're not saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of God. They're not saying, blessed is the coming kingdom that you have been talking to us about for three and a half years. No, they're saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. 
What does that tell us about their expectation? What does it tell us about what they're wanting here? Well, we don't have to guess. In Luke's gospel, he records this same moment, and there's this whole other feature that we don't see in Mark, and that is that as Jesus is cresting the hill on the Mount of Olives, he begins weeping. Isn't that interesting? There's only a couple places in the Bible where Jesus weeps, and and the word here for weeping is heaving. So something about this moment, as Jesus comes over and he sees Jerusalem, it it begins to move him emotionally, right? And then Jesus tells us why he's so moved, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would, and he's talking to Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on the, this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. See, Jesus is coming in, and it seems like this moment of victory that Jerusalem is, is, is welcoming him, and they're singing for him, and it, what a great moment, but Jesus knows the heart of those that are welcoming, welcoming him. He knows that what they want is they want the Davidic nationalistic kingdom. They want Israel to be a superpower. They want Jesus to come in and make war against Rome and kick Pilate out and tell Herod to, to kick sand and establish the Davidic realm again, the golden era of Solomon, right? That's what they want. And Jesus knows that's not what he's here to be. See, he's not coming to be the conquering king. He's coming to be what? The suffering servant. And they don't want the suffering servant. Why? Because they don't want God. They want his money. They don't want God. They want his power. They don't want God. They want their kingdom back. They want their freedom back. They want their nationalism back. And Jesus knows that they do not know what truly makes for salvation. So, What does that mean? It means that the triumphal entry is not a coronation of a king. It is not triumphal in any way. It is a somber and sad momentary whim of nationalism and hype that dissipates as quickly as it forms. Within moments, the crowd that greeted Jesus is gone. And then within days, that crowd will form again to shout the words, crucify him. This crowd is fickle. They are caught up in an emotional fervor of nationalistic excitement and hope that perhaps this is the moment where the Davidic Messiah will show up and kick Rome out. That's that's what they're caught up in. They're caught up in the hype. They're not caught up in true, authentic discipleship because true disciples follow the man on the donkey all the way. And these are not true disciples. Now, verse 11 is puzzling, and we're going to spend more time on it next week, but I just want you to see it. Mark's the only one that records this. It says, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What an anticlimax. All of this buildup, all of this lead up, all of this procession, all of this greeting, all of this welcome. And what's so sad about this verse is not what's there, but it's what's not there. Because Jesus was not greeted by those who should have greeted him, the leaders of Israel. Not only did they ignore his entrance, they began scheming as to how they would murder him. Jesus is rejected by the leadership of Israel. He is rejected by the temple and he walks up the steps that Herod created for his own glory and for his own power in the kingdom. He walks up the steps. He looks around just like he did with the rich young ruler. Remember, he looks around and he sees the deadness. And you know what he starts to do? He starts to make a plan. What's the plan? He's going to come back the next day. He's going to make a whip and he's going to drive 
out the deadness from the temple. Jesus didn't come to see the temple, as we'll see. He came to become the temple, as we'll see. And this is puzzling. Kings and lords don't enter Jerusalem only to leave and go sleep in Bethany in a peasant dwelling. This doesn't make sense, right? And rabbis of importance that draw the kinds of crowds Jesus just drew, they're not greeted with crickets at the door of the temple. Something is wrong here. Something is off here. So there's our passage. There's our text. Now let's step back and let's ask some questions of it. Okay, what is the point of this event? Why does it end this way? Why is Jesus so carefully orchestrating each and every detail? Why do the gospel writers all include this? Why is this moment so important for Jesus? What is he doing here? I want you to see that everything here done by Jesus has great purpose, great care, great intentionality. I want you to see five features of this text. We're just going to look at it again really quickly. Five, we're going to double click on five features of this text that, that show you just how meticulous Jesus is working salvation here. We're going to see when, that Jesus chooses when he enters, that Jesus chooses where he enters, how he enters, what he enters to, and why he is entering. Now I'm going to go through these quickly because I'm running out of time. First, Jesus chooses when he enters. Jesus is not making this up as he goes. He is not responding in the moment to how he feels. Yeah, maybe now it's a good time to go do the cross thing. Jesus is on the divine calendar that has been thought up within the Godhead of the Trinity for all eternity. God, the Father, is saving through the Son, by the Spirit. It's all on his clock, and the moment has been chosen before the foundations of the earth for Jesus, the Son, to die, and that moment is this week. And Jesus knows that. Okay, why this week? Because this week of Passover, not this week, but the week in our text, okay, this week of Passover, it's recorded in 40 AD that two, uh, let me see it, hold on, that 260,000 lambs were spent to atone for the blood of those who shed them. That, that this Passover feast was a reminder of the need for blood to cover sin. And that 260,000 lambs were brought in to Jerusalem, so much so that there's records, Josephus talks about a river of blood coming out of the temple. None of those lambs were sufficient to atone for the sin of the world. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this moment because this is the moment where he himself becomes the ultimate Passover lamb. Are you with me? Jesus comes in this moment because this is the moment where he will do what all of the lambs that have been slain for all of the history of, of Israel could not do to pay for our sins. He comes as the suffering servant. So Jesus chooses when he enters, and secondly, Jesus chooses where he enters from. Where does he enter from? First of all, he enters from the east. You think, so what? I want you to think back for a moment. The first Adam, Jesus is the second Adam. So the first Adam, when he sinned and him and Eve were cast out of the garden, which direction were they cast out from? The east. And an angel was, was parked there, a cherubim was parked there to guard entrance back into the presence of God. Jesus, the new Adam, the second Adam, is coming to make re-entrance so that the spirit of God and that the person of man could be reunited. And Jesus, just like Adam was cast out on the east, re-enters in the east. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus chooses where he comes from. And not only does he choose the direction, he chooses the place. He chooses the Mount of Olives. Now, what's so significant about the Mount of Olives? There's a lot of things, and I don't even have time to get to all of them. But here's just a couple. The Mount of Olives, if you remember, in the Old Testament was the place where when God's presence left Israel because they had been so apostate for so long, Ezekiel has this vision in Ezekiel 11 that the presence of God leaves the temple and it lands where? On the Mount of Olives. How significant that for hundreds of years the temple has been void of the true presence of God because the Spirit has left and landed on the Mount of Olives. Now Jesus, who is God, the literal walking presence of God, has chosen the Mount of Olives as his entry point to come back into his temple. The presence of God is back in the form of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? Do you think these details are just by chance? Or is Jesus responding to a much bigger picture of salvation than we could possibly imagine? Is Jesus in step with an eternal uh, plan of redemption that is massive and complex and meticulous? This is, none of this is by happenstance. This place on the Mount of Olives is where Jesus, in, 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 a, in a few months of our text timeline, will ascend to the right hand of the Father where he will begin to rule and reign the heavenly realm where he will have his true coronation to the right hand of the Father. And consequentially, Zechariah 14 tells us that the Mount of Olives is where Jesus will return for his true, listen, his true triumphal entry, where he will be greeted by those who will make war on him and those who will truly greet him as his disciples. He will come through the east. All of this has significance. Jesus chooses this place both to, for identification and for anticipation of his eternal administration. He wants us to know who he is, and he wants us to long for the moment where his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives again. And this time, he will not be on a donkey. He will be on a war horse. He will not be the suffering servant. He will be the king of kings come to dwell among us. So we see Jesus chooses when he enters. He chooses where he enters. Thirdly, he chooses how he enters. How does he enter? He enters peacefully. See, when kings of Israel would come into the capital city and they wanted to uh, sort of flex that they were going to be a powerful administration that was going to sort of change the direction, they would come in riding a war horse. But when kings wanted to signal that they were coming to serve the nation humbly, as a servant of the nation, they would come in riding a donkey. Jesus chooses this symbol to illustrate to us, the reader, and to those who believed him, that he was coming to be the servant, the suffering servant. Jesus comes to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. This is, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation and humble, mounted on a donkey. See, Jesus is trying to show that he is in step with this eternal plan of redemption. It's beautiful. Fourthly, are you guys with me? Are you tracking? Okay, this is really important stuff. Jesus chooses, number four, Jesus chooses what he enters to. He chooses to enter to the temple. Why is that significant? Well, first of all, it fulfills scripture. Malachi 3.1 says he will come suddenly to his temple. Jesus knows that. He wants to bring confidence for you and I, those that will read Mark's gospel, that everything Jesus did was according to the plan of the Father. It was prophesied. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. 
But he also comes to the temple in order to anticipate the fulfillment that the temple, as we'll see next week, is on its way out. And Jesus will become the new place that we meet with the presence of God. Now, number five, and this is the most important, so I'd love you to really tune in here. Jesus also knows exactly why he is entering right now. I asked the question, why did Jesus, who was so private before, all of a sudden orchestrate this massively public procession? Why did he do that? What was the purpose of that? Why does Jesus enter in this way? Jesus is essentially wrapping C4 explosive around his body and walking into a match factory. Do you understand that? Jesus is walking into a place that is hostile and is threatened by him, and he's doing everything possible to make sure, listen, to make sure that he is dead by Friday. It is his time to die. Jesus came to die. He came to die. There was no other way for salvation to be made possible. He came to die. This is what he's been carrying. This is what he's been trying to communicate to his, his disciples, who all they can think about is power. He's trying to communicate this to them, and Jesus knows that the moment he marches over the mount and draws all of this attention and thousands of people singing messianic psalm to him, he knows that that is the moment that he cannot look back because the Sadducees have identified him as their enemy. Rome has seen him as a threat, and the plot begins to unravel from that point. Within a day, the Sadducees will meet with the Pharisees in order to make a plan to kill him. Jesus is coming in publicly not to, to, to sort of show how triumphant he is. He's coming in publicly to make sure that he dies. Have you ever thought about that? He had to die. Without the death of Jesus, we're still in our sins. He had to die. So you're saying, Sam, so what? Here's what I want you to think about. In the midst of all the hype of the crowds, and all the misconceptions about his identity, and all the false religious infidelity, and all the power players visiting Jerusalem. Listen, God is saving. He's saving in the undercurrent. You see, there's so much going on in Jerusalem. If I could just paint the picture for you, it's, it's bustling. There's hype and excitement and nationalism and palm branches and Pilate rides in and Herod rides in and there's the temple and it's busy and crazy and exciting and there's food and feasting. Underneath all of that in the undercurrent, Jesus is saving because that's what he does. He saves. And see, you and I get caught up in so much stuff, don't we? I mean, we just get caught up in everything. Distraction after distraction after distraction. And underneath all of that, our God is a God who is saving. He's saving. He does that. He does it well. This is why Paul in Ephesians 1 says that in him, Jesus, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our sins, trespasses according to the riches of his grace, listen, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. God has been saving you since before you were born. He's good at it. God saves. It's amazing. While we're caught up and distracted doing the wrong things, Jesus is focused on, laser focused on exactly the right things in order to accomplish salvation. I'm so thankful for that. Amen. 
Now, so what? That's sort of the declarative of the passage. What's the declarative of the passage? God saves. He saves when we don't understand why he's coming in. We don't, he saves. I mean, the disciples didn't understand why Jesus was doing this. It was lost on them. They didn't connect the prophecies. They don't know what he's doing. But we get this vantage point to go, God's saving. That's what he does. Now, that's the declarative. What is the imperative? What is the thing that, that we are supposed to go, uh, what should this call us to? James Edwards, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Mark, he, he puts it this way. He says, like the seed in the parable of the sower that receives the word with joy but has no root and lasts but a short time, the crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembled. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, but only at the cross. You see, true disciples follow the man on the donkey all the way. How can we know who's in the kingdom? How can we know? Who are sheep and who are goats? How can we know who are wheat and who are tares? The answer is disciples follow the one on the donkey all the way. The Bible says to make our calling and election sure. How do we make our calling and election sure? We follow. We continue to follow. Not just in the moments of, of, of sensationalism, not just the moments of arenas where there's thousands of people all thinking like we're thinking, all singing what we're singing. Those moments are fine. Those moments are great. But in the moments where we're alone, the cross moments, you see, there is no crown without the cross. And Jesus called us to believe in his cross and then take up our cross. And to get to the crown, we have to carry the cross. That's called discipleship. We continue to follow him. That's how we know. We continue to follow him. Not just when it's fun or when it feels good or when everyone else is doing it, but when you are alone. You know, it's funny. I, I went to so many youth events where I felt something. I remember being in a giant stadium where thousands and thousands of kids were jumping up and down for Jesus, and the whole thing was moving. The whole like upper deck was flexing, and I remember the the, the giants, uh, you know, manager or whatever uh, was was concerned about the structural integrity because he said no one's ever done that before. I was like, wow, you know, and I wasn't even a Christian at the time. I was moved by that, but it didn't save me. It didn't save me. You know what saved me was when I was alone, when I was ready to quit myself. You know what I mean by that? I was like. I need to stop running my life because I'm ruining it. It was when I was alone, when I was desperate. It was when I realized that, that my life was not worth much unless he was part of it. It's when I came to the valley that I said, I quit, I retire, I give you my life. Here it is. It's not worth much, but here it is. See, the problem is, is disciples are made in the valley, but we avoid the valleys, right? We want the mountains, we want the times of clarity. We don't want the times of disciplined discipleship. So the declarative of the passage is that Jesus saves meticulously. The imperative of the passage is that we must cleave to him voraciously with two hands. That is the Christian life. You're just hanging on. You say, I just feel like I'm just barely hanging on. Exactly. That is what it means to abide like a branch. You just hang on all you do. He produces the fruit. It's not your fruit. It's his fruit. You just hold on. 
You hang on. That's what the Christian life is. Now, let me end with this. In five minutes, let me end with this. How can we be sure that we are truly disciples and not just caught up in the hype or the culture of a moment or an experience? I'm going to give you three ways to, to, to totally get caught up in the hype and miss Jesus, okay? Three ways to totally miss it. Three ways to end up being a tear rather than wheat. Three ways to end up being a goat rather than sheep, okay? So uh, they're very simple. So if you want to know, write them down, okay? Here's the first way you can get caught up in the hype and miss him. Measure your faith by feeling, not faithfulness. Measure your faith by feeling, not by faithfulness. I've seen this happen time and time again. Someone will have an experience with God, and these are good. We need experiences with God. But here's the problem. When you root your faith in how you know that you're saved in that experience, the experience starts to wear off. And, and, and it's, I mean, the feelings maybe don't come as quickly. See, God is trying to mature us. That's what he does. He's a good father. He's trying to grow us up. And he's trying to wean us off the bottle of sensuality. He's trying to wean us off the bottle of feeling, of emotion. Feeling isn't bad. Emotion isn't bad. But it's not really a balanced diet. Are you with me? He's trying to wean us off the bottle of feeling onto the whole foods of trusting. Trusting in what? Not my faithfulness. In his faithfulness. See, so if I want to burn out, if I want to not truly be a true disciple, I just need to make all of my assurance be on this one thing I felt one time. And here's what happens when you do that. You don't have that feeling anymore, and then you start to, go, you start to ask this question. Maybe it was all in my head. You know, maybe it wasn't real. Maybe, maybe it never really happened. Maybe, maybe I just felt something. Because the, the reality is you can go to a concert right now and feel something, right? And you're going to go to that concert and go, man, I feel kind of similar to what I did when I got saved. So maybe that's not real. Here's what I suggest to you. Root your faith in his faithfulness, not in your experience. Experiences are important. They're fine. They're helpful. But at some point, your faith has to source in something deeper. And I recommend that it's not proof of your faithfulness, but it's the proof of his faithfulness. See, heaven made a statement when, heaven sent, when God sent his son to die for you. That statement was that he is faithful. While you were yet in your sin, God sent his son for you. We can trust that. The way that we follow the man on the donkey all the way to the end is that we root our faith in what he has done for us, not what we feel in a moment. Because feelings come and feelings go. Same thing we do when we get married, right? It's not to have and to hold as long as I feel like I like you, right? It's to have and to hold through sickness and in health till death do us part. The beauty is, is this covenant was a covenant God made with us. It's based on his faithfulness. We can believe in that and cling to that. So first, measure your faith by feeling and not faithfulness. Secondly, live for Christianity instead of Christ. Oh, Sam, that's silly. People don't do that. People do it all the time. You might think Christianity is goofy, but there are hundreds of thousands of people that have fallen in love with Christianity and completely not fallen in love with Christ. There's a, lot to be, there's a lot to gain in being a Christian that has nothing to do with Jesus. Some people find the church, they're like, man, this is a place where people accept me. People don't like me in the world. At the church, people are nice to me. They let me be annoying. It's great. You know, I mean, oh, there's, there's good music. We have good movies now too, right? 
used to be, man, back in the dark ages, like anything that was Christian was pretty much lame, right? Like Christian music, lame. Christian movies, lame. Now there's some good stuff, right? I mean, Christian culture is a thing, and, and you can be endeared to Christian culture. You can be endeared to Christian movements and Christian leaders and Christian writings, and you can be endeared, listen, focus, you can be endeared to doing things for Jesus and not actually be endeared to Jesus, it happens all the time. People, they, they have an experience. They sign up and they go be a missionary. They do all these things for Jesus. All the while, their whole affection has been really given to missions and not given to Jesus. It happens all the time. And here's what happens. When Christianity turns out to be a terrible God, which it is, then you go, man, I don't think I want to worship Jesus anymore. But you were never worshiping Jesus. You were worshiping stuff that Jesus does or stuff that people wrote about Jesus or things that people were doing for Jesus. It's, 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 it's tricky, but you have to root yourself in him. I know you know the passage, right? You, you come before the Lord, and he says, I never knew you. And he's like, what, well, we did all of this stuff for you. I mean, there's going to be some confused, this, this should bring a tear to our eye, right? There's going to be some confused people at the judgment seat that are going to go, but I did so much. I was a faithful attender. I listened to Christian music. I even wrote Christian books. And Jesus is going to say, you did all that for yourself. You did all that for yourself, not for me. Number three, not only measure your faith by feeling and not faithfulness, not only live for Christianity instead of Christ, but listen, spectate rather than participate. Spectate rather than participate. It is very easy to warm your hands by the fire of other people's authentic relationship with Christ. And this is one of my concerns for Western evangelicalism is that we, uh, we do it all the time. There's nothing wrong with listening to your favorite pastor on your podcast. There's nothing wrong with watching the best worship in the world on your screen. Okay, but when you have to have that to connect with Jesus, something is wrong. When you have to leave your church because your church is not providing for you the experience that you need to feel like you've connected with the Lord, you are a baby. Feed yourself. Feed yourself. What, 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 what do you, you know, my kids, it's great. You know, they're, they're, they're to the point now where they're like, Dad, I'm hungry. I'm like, sweet, go feed yourself, right? Here's the problem. Like, we've created ministry environments that are so focused on making people feel a certain way that they can only feel that way if they're in that environment. I gotta go down to Reading because that's the only place the Holy Spirit lives, right? That's ridiculous. I remember when there was a revival in Florida, some, some crazy guy was out there doing crazy stuff, and all these friends of mine were flying to Florida to get the Holy Spirit. Like, he wasn't here. I'm like, are you, am I taking crazy pills? Like, you're flying to Florida to, to get the Holy Spirit? Here's what happens, okay? We, we believe we need a certain experience to feel a certain thing in order to feel as though we're really growing in Christ. That's not Christianity. You wanna grow in Jesus? Start discipling people because that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Holy Spirit doesn't exist to make really dark arenas give people goosebumps. The Holy Spirit exists to glorify Christ in the work of discipleship and the fruit of the Spirit where you die to yourself and you do something hard for the glory of Christ, not to make you feel a certain way when the bass hits just right. 
The Holy Spirit exists when you die to self, make disciples, glorify Jesus, pick up your cross, and follow through the unglorious life of discipleship because disciples are those that follow the man on the donkey all the way. And it's not glorious, and it's not goosebumps. It's hard, but it's truth. It's ultimate reality. That's what we're called to. So may this passage both be peaceful to us as we consider that Jesus is saving, he does it so well. May it also be dreadful to us as we look at this crowd and just realize how shallow hype can be. And I would invite you guys, you know, we live in a country that is still, uh, you know, regardless of what the guy on talk radio says, is still pretty uh, okay with Christians. It's still pretty comfortable to be a Christian in this country. And what that means is we need to be careful because it's really hard to see if our faith is really rooted in Christ or if it's just rooted in the fact that, man, all my friends believe this, the people that I hang out with believe this, the person on the radio believes this, and it's comfortable. Ask yourself, when Jesus continues past the crowd into the temple, do I follow him? Do I follow him? Do I follow him when the crowd isn't excited anymore? Do I follow him when I don't get goosebumps anymore? Some of you guys are, are dealing, and I get, it's one of the most common questions I get as a pastor is, how come I don't feel the Lord anymore? And, and the last thing in the world I would ever say is like, well, because you're just not doing enough. Here's what I usually say. I say, you're growing up. It's not to say that God is going to forever withhold feeling from you, but it is to say that to grow is to have to start to believe in him, not in what you feel, because faith doesn't always come with feeling. This is why we have to believe the gospel. The gospel is unchanging. It is a reality proven out by the resurrection of Christ. And it doesn't change. Your feelings will change. The gospel doesn't. It is eternal truth. Amen? We've got about 10 minutes. So I'd love for us to break into groups. I'm going to say a quick prayer. I have some discussion questions for us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this scene that Jesus, you arranged before the foundations of the earth in order that you might die, in order to pay for our sins, for those that would believe and follow you, Lord, that we can be saved. Lord, I pray for all of those who think because they once said a prayer but have no interest in following you, I pray you would win them over by the gospel. They would be born again, become true disciples. Lord, I pray this would be a church where, Lord, we are, we're not about feeling a certain thing. We're about following a certain reality. And if feelings come, then great. Lord, make us true disciples. Give us the faithfulness we need to follow you all the way. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.